Well, good afternoon. Welcome to our afternoon service. I hope that you have had a good day thus far and are looking forward to a good afternoon. Let me encourage you again. This is service number nine, and it's 1.30 in the afternoon post-lunch. And so let me encourage you to apply an extra measure of intentionality. I know you'll enjoy our speaker. Dr. Brent Belford is going to speak for us again today. But let me encourage you to work hard at engaging in our service today. We're going to be led in prayer as we open by Hunter Savinsky, a senior biblical studies and business administration major from Lakeville, Indiana. Hunter, come lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, we are broken before you and God. We come in desperation and dependence to you. And Lord, our sin is just truly so great. And Lord, I'm so thankful for your love for us. And it was that love that sent Jesus to die for us. And Lord, I just pray that that love would constrain us, Lord, that it would control us, that it would change our lives. Lord, I pray for this service, Lord, that you would take your truth, that you would plant it deep within us, Lord, that you would grow us to be more in your likeness. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to have a heart for lost people, Lord, that we would be willing to take the gospel, Lord, to the places where um, you are not named, Lord. And I just pray that you would give us the grace and the strength to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing together of our Redeemer who died for us. Let's stand and rejoice. Just a couple of announcements uh, this afternoon. First of all, Crockett League Plus is going to be the event to be at with remote controlled car soccer, popcorn, 
and a drawing for a remote control car, boba tea, and more. So don't miss your chance for an afternoon of fun. Go to the museum and gallery patio right after this afternoon's service. Uh, secondly, you can climb for a cause at the Cavaliers Rockwall Race next to Johnson Residence Hall following each evening service. For only $4 per person, you can climb at your own pace or you can challenge friends to a race. This is a one-of-a-kind one of fundraiser that you do not want to miss. Well, again, we are so thankful for all the ways the student body and others have gotten involved in helping to raise money and give money toward uh, Dare for More and this very important ministry. And we're anticipating tonight when the final offering uh, fundraising totals will be announced, and we'll see what the Lord has done through the work of so many uh, by His grace. And this really has been a great week. Uh, the Lord has blessed in so many different ways. And I would just encourage um, each one of us, whether it's today at some point or perhaps tomorrow or over the weekend, whether it's in your own regular time with the Lord, that you take some time to reflect specifically on what the Lord has done in your own heart uh, through this week and through the focus that we've had uh, on His mission field, on the greatest cause that any one of us could involve our lives with. So I'd encourage you to do that. And as we think about that now, let's, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful that we can call upon you as our God. We do acknowledge that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from you, the Father of light, with whom there is no changing. And we acknowledge that to whom much has been given, much, has been, much will be required. So I pray that by your grace, you would make each one of us faithful stewards in the callings that we have particularly with being entrusted with your gospel message. We thank you for your promise that the fields are white unto harvest already. And I pray that we would have eyes of faith as we see people who are around us and understand their need, their need of Christ. Thank you that it's your work in our hearts that makes us willing to do of your good pleasure. This isn't something that we need to work up on our own. But as we yield to you, as we submit to you, as we humble ourselves before you, you do a work of grace in our hearts. So we thank you for what you've done. And I pray that you'd continue to work even in this service this afternoon. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand once again. We'll continue singing of our Lord, our rock, our redeemer, the one who rose and conquered the grave for us.
Thank you, Sarah and Benaiah. It was beautiful. There's a group of young men off to my right, and I'm not the most astute person in the world, but you are gaming right now, and I would encourage you to stop. Make sure your eyes are up, that your heads are not down, and all of you aren't looking at your phone and sharing with one another. We're privileged to have come as our preacher again this afternoon, Dr. Brent Belford. Please give him your attention. Please understand when I say work really hard at staying awake, I don't mean to play games. I mean to pay attention. So give your attention, please, not to the speaker, but to the Word of God. Give a warm welcome to Dr. Belford. All right, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1 uh, this afternoon in your Bible. It's been a great joy. I should adjust these from Pastor Matt uh, there the other day. Okay. Oh, he's still here. Good to see you, brother. <laughs> it's been a great joy to be with you and to hear the, the Word of God open, to hear and consider what the scriptures say uh, about evangelism and challenge to me and encouragement to me to use my life to glorify the name of God. I'm thankful as well to be given this strategic spot uh, in the, the calendar. And uh, I don't know what it is, but I tend to inherit this position. Uh, when I was at Northland, uh, they had a heart conference every year, and my role was I was the sub. You know, so as a New Testament professor there all the time, no one wanted to hear me. But if a speaker couldn't come in, and that happened more regularly than we would have liked to admit because of snow. If you've ever been to upper Wisconsin, you understand that. But uh, so, you know, sometimes the night before, hey, we have no one else to preach tomorrow. Brent, can you fill in? Sure. And what I noticed was uh, throughout the time, normally it was either the eighth or the ninth slot in the week. So um, I know, uh, you know, from baseball, that's where you put your power hitter, right? You put him right in the ninth spot. Uh, well, regardless, uh, we're going to trust the Lord for grace and strength. Uh, we'll take about a half hour to work through scripture with you, and I, I pray that the Lord will use it in your life. This afternoon, I want to consider something that might relate more specifically to only some people within the audience presently. This afternoon, we're going to consider how God uses affliction, suffering, or persecution for gospel advance. Some of you, no doubt, are living in the midst of one of those things right now. There's some great affliction, some great trial that you find yourself in. Others, perhaps, uh, maybe not so much right now, but we will all face it personally or in our lives at some point with people that we love. And so I encourage you to pay close attention this afternoon to write these things down, perhaps even after some thought to write uh, some of these things in the margin of your Bible. So, so that when the time comes, you would be ready to honor God even in the difficult and hard times. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul turns his attention to a, a way that the believer's mindsets should be focused on the gospel. As I study the book of Philippians, I think the whole uh, theme of the book has to do with our mind, the way that we think. We can argue about that sometime in the den or something, but I think the whole book is about your mindset. And in chapter 1, Paul wants to show that in the believer's mindset must be a real solid focus on the gospel. The word gospel is used repeatedly in chapter 1. And he goes from first focusing our attention on our partners in the gospel. If you look in verse 5, Philippians 1.5, you'll see the words, the, the uh, fellowship of the gospel, our partners in the gospel. And then in verse 12, he transitions to uh, the furtherance of the gospel. Look at verse 12 just for a moment. It says, but I would... Ye should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. 
And so Paul wants us to think about different ways that we might advance or further the gospel. And he dwells on three ways in particular in chapter 1. He starts by showing how affliction can further the gospel. He moves to showing how his death might advance the gospel. And then he concludes with continued life. This morning we're only going to look at affliction and see how it can advance the gospel. We're going to look at Philippians 1 verses 12 through 18 and there we'll see three ways that affliction can advance the gospel. In other words, I think these three ways all answer the same question. How can my affliction be used by God to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the question Paul's answering. Let me give you the three. We'll start with number one. So as Paul begins, he uncovers a new special object of his gospel ministry in Rome. And he shows us, first of all, that affliction can create greater exposure for evangelism. That's my first point. Affliction can create greater exposure for evangelism. And he'll demonstrate this in verses 12 and 13. So let's look there in your Bible. Verse 12. Paul says, but I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things that have happened unto me have fallen out rather into the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Our affliction can create greater exposure for evangelism. As Paul writes Philippians, of course, many of you would know he sits imprisoned in, home, in his own home in the city of Rome, chained to Roman soldiers. It had been four years since his incarceration started. It started back in Jerusalem. If you, if you know anything about the, the final part of the book of Acts, he, he narrates the story of a shipwreck and how he, he finally eventually makes it to Rome. And then in Acts chapter 28, he's there and during this time, I believe he writes books like Philippians. Now, I'm sure that his Philippian brothers and sisters would be greatly concerned about how Paul was doing. As a matter of fact, they were so concerned, they sent an elderly man by the name of Epaphroditus to come back and to check out Paul to see how he was doing. No doubt some of these Philippians, they might have attributed Paul's chains and imprisonment to the power and the reach of the Roman Empire. Paul, however, has a different perspective on things. Paul sees God in control using his imprisonment for the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, this wasn't the first time Paul was in prison. He knew a little bit about this. And he knew that God often has people in those places, in jails and prisons and in his imprisonments. And he places them there as ripe objects or fruit for the gospel of Christ. As a matter of fact, it struck me just in preparing for this sermon this time that one of the first converts in the Philippian church itself was a jailer. You remember Acts 16? Philippian jailer in his house believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine as Paul's writing this letter, the jailer sitting in the gathered assembly, and Paul's talking about how God's using his bonds, his chains in Christ? I I can imagine him smiling through that, praising the Lord, giving grace for what God did in his earlier imprisonments in Philippi. But uh, in verse 13, Paul explains something very important here. He explains that his affliction caused greater exposure to the gospel to two different groups of people. That's how I take the last part of verse 13. If you look in your Bible, it says, in all the palace and in all other places. You see that in your Bible, verse 13. In all the palace and in all other places. I think that's describing two groups of people, not two locations. Now, some translations will take it that way. The King James does for sure. But the translations are a bit more general than we would see in our English Bibles. The last phrase, for, the instance, uh, for instance, it says, in all other places, it's literally all the rest. And you're like, rest what? All the rest of what? 
I think it's likely with that last phrase that Paul is saying that all of Rome's inhabitants were aware of his imprisonment for Jesus Christ in Rome. The inhabitants of Rome knew about Paul in prison. All the rest, all the rest of the people. Now, the first one demands a little bit more attention. He says, in all the palace, and the word palace comes from a word praetorian. And that word can be taken in a few different ways. Some people uh, point out that the word can be used of a location where Roman armies would be located. Uh, a tent-like headquarters out in the field where the troops would come together and, and uh, would be safe and strategize. Uh, I don't think that's the best idea here because we have no indication that Paul was ever in a tent like this. A Roman headquarters for an army. Others say, no, it's the state of a wealthy landowner. Again, I think when you look at uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and the end of Acts, which describe this imprisonment, because he's, he's writing those books from there, and, and Luke describes it, there's no indication that he stayed in a wealthy landowner's home either. Uh, some uh, also point and say, well, maybe it does mean a palace. Maybe it's the residence of Caesar. Again, when I'm looking at the prison epistles and I look at Acts, I don't, I don't see how that really makes much sense of the, the data we have. And so there's another way to take this. Instead, I think Paul uses the word praetorian to describe not a location, but a group of people. He's using it to describe the praetorian. An elite group of Roman soldiers called the Praetorian Guard. Our ministry in uh, Virginia Beach were right beside the largest naval base in the world. And on occasion, I have opportunity to minister to the SEAL community. Uh, the Praetorian Guard were amazing soldiers. They're a group of nine or 10,000 soldiers handpicked by the emperor to, who served for 15 years. These were all Italian men who were paid double for their service, and their primary duties involved two things. They were tasked to protect Caesar. So you imagine sometimes these nine, 10,000 soldiers, really you know, powerful men, they would protect the Caesar. Uh, and then in other cases, it was their job to watch over some of the most important prisoners of the Roman Empire. Now, normally these, these prisoners, when they would be tasked with watching a, 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 an important uh, prisoner, they would chain themselves to the prisoner with a little chain. It was called an holasis. It was 18 inches to 36 inches long. There was an opening at one end for one wrist, an opening at the other for another, and they would chain themselves to the prisoner. Uh, they would rotate shifts every four or five hours as well to keep themselves fresh. So... In my opinion, this text reveals to us that God had specifically chosen these men, these praetorian soldiers, as objects of Paul's special evangelistic campaign in Rome. You say, well, do you have any other evidence for that? Well, there, there's, there's a little something at the end of Philippians. Philippians 4, verse 22. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Philippians 4, verse 22, Paul writes, he says, All the saints salute you, chiefly those who are of whose household? Caesar's household. When you put the two pieces of verse 22 together, even in an afternoon when we're really tired, we can figure out that what he's saying is some of Caesar's household had become saints, become believers. Can you imagine these men who'd be chained to the Apostle Paul and the advantages they would have for his two years in prison in Rome? No doubt they were there when Paul would entertain visitors and tell these visitors how God was using his affliction to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you think Paul ever prayed in two years? You think he did? So no doubt this prisoner 36 inches away from Paul had the opportunity to hear the Apostle Paul pray. Pray for release and deliverance by the hand of God, but then joyfully submit to it. No doubt they would hear Paul pray for the souls of unbelievers. But then I kept thinking. Think of the advantage of these men. They would have the opportunity to see Paul read the scriptures too. And better yet, this is amazing, you ready? 
These men, these special objects of God's plan for evangelization in Rome through Paul's affliction, they would also be able to watch him write Holy and Spirit, Holy Spirit inspired letters. You know how cool it would be to be there? See Paul write Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Some of these men perhaps saw that. What a privilege. No wonder why some were converted. But for Paul, the point I want to make, if you get nothing else this morning, is this. For Paul, it was not evangelism in spite of his chain, but it was evangelism because of it. It was not evangelism in spite of his chain, it was because of it. You see, for Paul, the guard at the end of the chain represented a soul for whom Christ died. Perhaps you're facing something significant in your life, a great sickness or medical battle or severe depression. Well, I say to you pastorally, God wants to use your affliction for the gospel's advance. Maybe we should remember that the doctor or nurse at the end of the bed represents a soul for whom Christ died. Perhaps it's someone you love or care for that's going through a prolonged battle with illness or disability, cancer, Parkinson's, MS, other ailments. May you too, brother, sister, remember that that, uh, God is increasing your and his or her network of relationships for the gospel. Pastorally, I've started asking one question of people as I go to try to encourage them when they go through trials like this. And I sure hope people in my congregation someday and the congregation I serve at Colonial, they'll ask me the same question when I'm on the bed. After listening to them and praying with them, encouraging them from Scripture, I asked them this one question. I think it'd be good for you to ask yourself, what new person has God brought into my life through this affliction that might be the object of the gospel? Or what new people am I now interacting with that I wasn't interacting with before that I can share the gospel with? For some of you, perhaps it's none of these things. You're doing pretty well physically. You can rejoice in how you're doing, but maybe for you this week it'll be vehicle troubles. You say, well, my car's doing okay. You know, it's doing all right. I remember being at a Bible college and seeing the condition of the cars. Uh, It was a pretty scary proposition. And at that time in Wisconsin, uh, there, there there was no state inspection. I remember going on extension in a car that had one headlight and it was taped in. And uh, we were going down the road one dark night and you barely see and then all of a sudden we hit a bump and the lights just dangling there. The guy pulls it back in, tapes it in, we're good to go. Keep moving. My car for a while on extension had a trail of fuel that would follow you. Uh, There was a leak in the gas tank if you went over half a tank and just the way it was. So you're rejoicing, you know, no vehicle problems. It's been a good week. Well, maybe not next week. And as you're stranded and as you're forced to interact with complete strangers as they're trying to help you, perhaps in some cases, maybe you should remember that the person working on your car represents a soul for whom Christ died. May we too see that our affliction can create greater exposure for evangelism. Now, Paul moves on. Paul moves to another way that our affliction can advance the gospel. And I would summarize it this way, through increased efforts in evangelism. Affliction can create increased efforts in evangelism. Perhaps uh, some would be concerned that since Paul's in prison, the great apostle, I mean, the one who, you know, we think is like most in tune with the Lord, most powerful in his witness, now he's in prison. You'd think other believers, they would just be so intimidated they wouldn't say anything now. But that's not what happens. You got to read the text here, okay? So look, starting in verse 14, it says, And many of the brethren in the Lord 
waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So the second result of Paul's imprisonment in Rome is that many believers, I think many believers in Rome, and notice it doesn't say many preachers, Many believers in Rome now dared to speak the gospel boldly. In other words, they were inspired by Paul's commitment to Christ. Now, to fully appreciate this, I think we have to understand the historic moment that this passage is addressing in Rome. Think about what you know about what believers will face in Rome in the next 10 years. They're, they're going to face an unprecedented, unprecedented amount of bloodshed. There's going to be a great swell of persecution that will go through the place. I mean, it's going to be so bad that Caesar himself will take believers, he will feed them to lions. Some believers he will, he will impale on poles and use them as torches to light the sky night. But in the midst of all of this growing and increasing violent persecution, what Paul wants to show is that God was stirring the hearts of normal believers to proclaim Christ. God was using them and empowering them to rise above the terrors of their life and to stand firm for Christ. Okay, but, but how was he doing that? It's very simple in this passage. It started with God giving boldness to the Apostle Paul, and then Paul's courage in prison was contagious. His own house in prison was, was contagious. You see, believers who are going through affliction must not lose sight of the impact that their courage in the midst of the affliction can have on people around them, and not just the loss. It can greatly encourage believers as well. The true story of Hugh Ladmer and Nicholas Ridley, early reformers of the church, I think illustrate this well. In 1555 at Oxford, these two men, Latimer and Ridley, faced martyrdom. I first became aware of their story when I became a PhD student in Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. One day I was walking across the campus, I noticed a mural, it was a, a figure of Nicholas Ridley's head on the side of the building, and there was one statement written next to it. The statement is still there to this day at Ridley College, it says, so long as breath is in my body, I will never deny my Lord Jesus. Well, during their execution, Latimer said to Ridley this, he said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in English, England that I trust shall never be put out. This was the day of their martyrdom. By God's grace, God did powerfully use their testimony to convince many believers to stand near the start of the Reformation period. Even in their affliction, they saw how God might use their greatest trial to encourage other believers to declare their own commitment to the gospel. So many believers were inspired by Paul's imprisonment. But I want you to notice something else about them. Uh, I want you to notice in the text that, that these believers are being inspired for two different reasons. And so in verses 15 through 17... We see these two reasons. We specifically see that Paul explains there are two groups of people who were inspired to preach Christ because of his imprisonment. We'll go quickly through this. I, I see the first group in verse 15, and then you skip the end of verse 15 and verse 16. The second group is described in the other parts. So this first group, uh, Paul would describe them this way. They were envious, and they preached Christ with improper motives. Look at verse 15. Paul says, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. Then skip a few words to keep hearing more about them. In the King James, you look in verse 16. Other versions, maybe verse 17, because there's a verse difference here. But verse 16 says, the one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds. 
Okay, so there were some who were envious of Paul's apparent success in the gospel, and they were preaching to try to make life more difficult for Paul. But who are these people? I mean, have you ever actually dug around in this passage to try to understand who these people are? Well, one of the points I'd make about them is these people are not Judaizers. They are not preaching a different Jesus. They are preaching Jesus. They're preaching Christ. If you keep reading, you see these brothers, whoever they are with false motives, are preaching the right gospel. Their problem was not with Jesus. Who was their problem with? Are you still awake? Paul. Yeah, got some of you got up front here. Paul. In other words, they were orthodox in their theology. They just didn't care for Paul for some reason or another. By the way, do you know that you can be called by God, spirit-filled, spirit-led, empowered by God, and yet still have Christian critics? It's possible, trust me. Hang in there. Paul uses two important words to describe these falsely motivated brothers here. First, he uses the word envy, a word that he uses often in Philippians nine times by my count this morning. The word envy means jealous. They desired to deprive Paul more than to gain anything for Christ. They're jealous of him for some reason. They want to they make life harder for him. I might encourage you to write down a parallel passage for sake of time. I'm not going to go there today. But if you could write down Matthew 20, 20 through 24. This word is envy is used there. And the reason I go there sometimes to help you with it is, is uh, this word, I think, helps us understand how believers can ever get to a place where they would be so envious or jealous of someone that, uh, that just really destroys them. In Matthew 20, 20 through 24, it's the... Disciples, you remember two disciples, there was a mother who came to Jesus and two of her sons came with her and they wanted the best seat and seats in the kingdom. And and all along the way, if you look at the last verse, Matthew 20, 24, it says that the 10 grew indignant. That's the word envious. The 10 were stirred with envy at the other two. They didn't feel bad for Jesus. Oh, here's a loving mother and it's going to be awkward. How's he going to deal with this? They were jealous. They wanted the best seats in the kingdom. These believers in in Rome, though, also preach Christ out of strife. Strife is rivalry that attempts to achieve more than another person. Rivalry that attempts to gain more or achieve more than another person. And what is beginning to be obvious here is that the problem with these brothers who are preaching Christ out of envy and strife is they have the wrong motive. They're proclaiming Christ in Rome with new fervency and intensity to, to make a name for themselves. To afflict the Apostle Paul in his imprisonment. Another way of saying this is they want to tighten the shackles on his wrists. And they want him to have to endure much more. So they start preaching Jesus to get Paul into more trouble. F.B. Meyer, the old writer over 100 years ago, had this statement that I just thought might help us to understand how some people could proclaim Jesus with selfish desires. Meyer said this, he said, How many of us, the Lord's servants, are secretly cherishing some proud purpose of excelling other men or making a name for ourselves? And he said this, and I've never forgotten this. I think of it often. He says, we use the pulpit as a pedestal for the praise of the world. We use the cross as a post on which to hang garlands for our own glory. See why I like that? Meyer says it's possible, F.B. Meyer says it was possible to do something even like preaching for the wrong reason. You're doing it to get the glory for yourself. It's possible to minister for the Lord. It's possible to share the gospel for the wrong reason. In this case, they're doing so to tighten the shackles 
on Paul's wrist. But there was another group that were preaching Christ. The second group, verse 15, in the middle of the verse, we could read about them. It says, and some also of goodwill. King James, we skip down to verse 17. The other of love, knowing I'm set for the defense of the gospel. So there was another group in Rome who were inspired by the Apostle Paul. They're proclaiming Christ with love and pure motives. And I think the reason they felt compelled to do this is because they knew God placed Paul in Rome in this imprisonment so that he could defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, they knew God was the implied actor all along in all of this, all throughout. God put Paul there. So now they preach with new fervor and new effect in their preaching. They up the intensity and the volume and the commitment, and they're in the streets of Rome preaching Jesus out of goodwill and love. Then Paul said for the defense of the gospel. So, affliction. Affliction can create greater exposure for evangelism. It can create increased efforts in evangelism. Finally and quickly, it also can create more personal joy for evangelism. This is just one verse. Verse 18. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, I therein do rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice. So Paul basically asks in verse 18, what's, the, what's my conclusion regarding the advance of the gospel through both these sincere and these falsely motivated brothers who hate me? His answer, either way, Christ is preached and that causes me joy, joy, and more joy. May God give us eyes for the gospel like this as well. So that even in our affliction, through the tears perhaps, we can see the gospel and consider its advance in our lives. In one of his commentaries, John MacArthur tells the story of the Boxer Rebellion in extreme nationalist China in the 1900s. These nationalists formed a campaign of terror against officials of foreign governments and Christian missionaries and Chinese Christians. On one occasion, they surrounded a certain mission station. They sealed all of the exits but one, and they trapped 100 Christians inside. After some time, they devised a way to release the prisoners. They said all they had to do was step on a cross that they'd put just outside of the station. And so these nationalists, they put this cross in the dirt in front of the open gate, and they told the missionaries and students that any one of them could go free if they would walk out the gate, tramp on the cross, they could go. And so the first seven Christians out the door, one after another, walked out the gate, came up to the cross. Now, they knew what that meant. They knew that for them, that would be a recanting the name of Jesus. They get to the cross, they tramp on the cross, and then they walk away and they're allowed to go. But MacArthur tells the story of the eighth student, a young girl, barely a teenager, who approached the cross, knelt down, prayed for strength, arose, carefully walked around the cross, and was immediately shot to death. One of the most compelling parts of the whole story, though, is what happened to the other 92 people in the station. The remaining 92 Christians, strengthened by this girl's courageous example, all walked to the cross. Some had time to deal and pray. But all of them walked around the cross to their death. Her courage in the face of death, the 
think not only inspired those 92 Christians, it inspires us even to this day. She was ready to wear chains or to be killed for Jesus and her boldness and courage inspired people then and it still does today. You say, is it still possible for one person to make a difference like this? I think it is. I believe it is. I remember a 13-year-old boy in my former church. One day, he was just sharing the gospel in a public restaurant. He was trying the best that he could with the words he had to share the good news of what God did for him, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as this young man was sharing the gospel in this awkward moment in this public restaurant, in came an elderly deacon of our church. He just happened to come to the same restaurant at the same time. And as he happened upon this boy, he heard this boy sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the best words that he could use. And that elderly deacon was rebuked. He was so rebuked that at our next corporate gathering, and we had four or 500 people, at our next corporate gathering, he stood up and he confessed his sin. Years of failure in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he asked for accountability from the entire congregation to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we close, we've learned three ways that even our affliction can further the gospel, can give greater exposure, increased efforts for evangelism, and more joy. I encourage you to write these things down. You'll need them eventually. And to commit to serve God in the days ahead. If presently you are going through this, I ask you my pastoral question. What new person has God brought into your life as a result of the gospel? What new people has he brought? And will you share the gospel and use your affliction for gospel advance like Paul? Let's pray together. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, may all our days bring glory to your name. Lord, we sang that song, easy to sing, but here we consider some days that will involve affliction, trial, difficulty. May we be willing to sing. May all our afflictions Bring glory to your name. Lord, help us to learn from Paul today. Help us to be willing to use our afflictions for gospel advance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.